So in your uh, pew Bible, if you want to turn to page uh, 761, we're going to start there. Uh, If not, you can just follow along as we're going to read it. Seven sixty one. It's uh, Luke one forty one and forty four. Luke one forty one and forty four. <clears throat> All right. So it says. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then down to first, <coughs> excuse me, to verse 44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. So I don't know if it's uh, ironic that we're having to talk about this on Mother's Day or not. I guess it could be. But this is not a... So make sure you hear me out on this, that this is not a woman issue. This is a men and women issue that we're going to talk about today. If anybody has been even remotely glancing at the news, um, you know that Roe versus Wade is very close to being overturned. And so it's something to talk about. Um, I've heard it said before that churches shouldn't comment on political issues. Um, I think that that's not really well thought out in general because all churches have some type of view on things. And I'm not saying what your view should or shouldn't be. I'm just going to present something to you and you can decide what to do with it. And that goes for the people listening on audio as well. But like I said, all churches... <laughs> Just go sit down. All churches uh, support something. Uh, the, you know, the organization uh, that used to be this church, uh, the UCC, right? Is that what it was? Well, well I mean, part of. Part of the UCC. Yeah. Um, they, they have supported abortion since 1971 openly. So all churches have a stance, whether they know it or not, either by what they believe or by who they're associated with. But what I just don't think, and it's up to you to decide, like I said, but I don't think that Scripture takes that same support. And so that's what we're going to talk about. But when we talk about politics, what do we mean? Because that's essentially what it's boiling down to is politics. So politics are activities associated excuse me with the governance of a country or a town or a state things like that right but governing is a moral issue politics are not disassociated from from morality because when you talk about governing you're talking about governing through what through laws and laws are generally, I would think, decided on based on people's morals, what they think is right. So it's all connected. There's no good reason for churches to be disassociated from politics because it's all about morality in the end. The 
The question is, whose morality decides what laws are instituted? Is it yours? Is it mine? Is it God's? When we get to the yours and mine, what we talk about is subjective morality, essentially, because I could have a completely different personal view on something than you could, or you could, or you could. So opinions can change, and I can have a different opinion 10 years from now or 10 years ago than what I have now. That's subjective morality because it constantly is in flux. Subjective morality just isn't the answer. Because when you have an opinion on something, when you have a thought on something, the way you know if you're right is you go to Scripture. And does my view meld with the view of God? Right? This doesn't only work with politics. It's with how you raise your family, uh, your priorities in life, your work life, but most essentially your doctrine. And what we're getting to is that God is an objective lawgiver. When God says this is what it is, there's no questioning it, right? Otherwise, God's laws would be subjective as well. So the buck stops with Him. The fact that God's laws are objective is something that you kind of have to come to agreement, agreement with, in, at least in the context of church, because if you don't, how does the conversation go any farther? It really can't. But if you're born again, you can't go back to being your own authority. We are slaves to Christ. We are not our own authority anymore. That's what Scripture tells us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So, is your faith new eyes? Or is it just that lens that you can take on and off whenever you feel like it? So we will comment on the politics of this because even though we are citizens of heaven, we are citizens of heaven now. We do live here for the time being. And politics affect laws, which affect society's morals, which affects how we live here in the now. So I can't force anyone to share the opinion of what I get from Scripture here. But we can talk about it, and I will try to explain as best as I can in my feeble way that the pro-life argument is more biblical in nature than the pro-choice, okay? That's what we're talking about today. So the world has done a really good job at changing people's minds on this subject. Really good since what we said in 1971. In my short time on the planet, I've seen it go from safe, legal, and rare. Does anybody remember that from the 90s? During the Clinton administration? It was safe, legal, and rare. That's what it needed to be. But now we've gone from safe, legal, and rare to just legal, 
and not really rare. You can't talk about it in the context of rare anymore. Because in 2019, there was 630,000 abortions in the United States. That's just the United States. That's not other countries. That's just us. And 2% of those, I don't know what that number would be, but 2% of those were because of the mother's life being at risk. So a very small percent. That's a common talking point on there. So instead of safe, legal, and rare, we have legal, and we don't talk about babies anymore. We talk about zygotes, and we talk about fetuses, which are just stages of development of human beings. We talk about the agony and the violation of carrying an unwanted baby. But we don't really talk about the baby. We have capital punishment for the innocent, even though they weren't asked to be created. So we've demeaned the creation of life, and that is a gift that God gave us if you go back to Genesis. In some states, this this is something that's always, I thought, very ironic, even before I became a believer. In some states, and it may be the case in Nebraska, if I am, say, drunk, and I T-bone somebody driving, and they're pregnant, and they're with child, you can get charged with double murder. But that same woman, and I'm not saying this is the woman's fault, but that same, I'm just talking about the scenario, That same person, if I hadn't T-boned her, if she had been on the way to an abortion facility, there's no murder. But I T-boned her 10 minutes before, and now I'm charged with double murder. So the laws are not congruent with each other. They give value based on subjectivity, which again we talked about is different from person to person. Not objectivity. It's only if... The couple really wants the baby, that it's a baby. But my point is that you are valuable. Every single one of us are valuable. No matter what stage of development you're in, whether you're 101 and you're on life support, or if you're in your working years, or if you're in the womb, you have the same value that you have always had in the eyes of God. Now, to be clear on this, this is not an issue of a woman's right to choose to be pregnant. That's not what this is about, and that's what it's commonly misplaced as. The issue is that the baby is already there. That's the issue. And is a person worth less due to development or location? That's the question. Worth less to us or worth less to God? So what will overturning Roe do if it happens, and it looks like it may happen in the next month or two? It's going to give the power back to the states. It's not going to magically make abortion illegal in all the United States. It's just going to give the states the right to make their laws as they deem fit. A lot of people seem to think that once Roe is overturned, that's it. It's over for the, the pro-abortion side, and it's not. But if it's overturned, that means 
that yours, yours, everyone's votes suddenly have a little bit more meaning than they did one decision before that. Because a lot of states will be voting on that. So who you put in the legislatures will help, depending on what your view is. That's why this is so important that the Christianity that you claim is not just a lens you can take off. That it is your eyes. This is worth the conversation. So, it's my belief, and a lot of other people's too, that the evidence of God's work is everywhere. We've talked about about this in just the general idea of creation of the universe, how how you can't create something out of nothing. God was there to do this. But biology is no exception. At fertilization, and anyone will tell you, you have a new creation. You have somebody there with a new DNA that is only their DNA. You will never see it again in the life of this planet. Given time, we know what that DNA turns into, that it is a child. Now, the argument that you will hear from people is that at that point, and that's when they would call it a zygote, that that is just a clump of cells. But here is the question that I ask you. Even if it is just a clump of cells at that point, is it living? That is the ultimate question at that point. Is it living? Dead things don't grow. At least not to the best of my knowledge. So is it living at that point? That is the question that a person has to consider. Is it autonomous? Absolutely not. The baby is most certainly in need of help from the mother. But so is a 34-week-old baby who has not been born yet. And so is a newborn. Eleanor is by no means autonomous. She cannot take care of herself. So that cannot be the distinction for life. There are some states even now, preparing because of all this, that are trying to make it legal to kill the child after they have been born. They want that to be legal as well. That's what you get when we talk about these slippery slopes. Things just get worse and worse if you keep letting them do this, if you don't vote with your faith. So what about God's word on abortion? Because that's what this is ultimately going to get down to. If we're being completely honest with this text, there is not a verse that will say, I am God, I am against abortion. There's not a verse that says that. But what we have in Scripture constantly on lots of issues is cumulative teachings that show us the mindset of God. Psalms 127.3 says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord, The fruit of the womb is a reward. It doesn't say, Behold, the children you planned for are a gift of the Lord. Abraham learned that the hard way when he didn't wait for his miracle. Because there's never a right time to have a child. There's always something that you could wait for for this to happen, this to happen, finances to get better, whatever it would be. 
But the thing is, is that what you have there is an image of God that God has said is your gift and your reward. That is what he puts, where he puts children. And like I said, it's not just the children you wanted because what a selfish statement to say anyways. God gives us gifts when He gives them to us, not on our own time. God doesn't always give us healthy children. This doesn't say that the healthy children you get are a gift of the Lord because health is not guaranteed in this lifetime. But even if you have a child who has a mental disorder, a physical disorder, Somebody who, when they grow up, just gives you trial after trial as they buck against you. God says that that is still a gift of the Lord. That is a fruit of the womb. In Exodus 21, 22-25, I'm going to read through this real quick. It says, Now if people struggle with each other and strike a pregnant woman so that she gives birth prematurely, But there is no injury. The guilty person shall certainly be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now, this is Old Testament law. We are not under Old Testament law anymore. However, you can see there that in the Old Testament law time, God so valued the unborn that women and children had a special protection with the children of Israel. In Psalms 139, 13-16, it says, For you created my innermost parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you because I am awesomely and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made secret and skillfully formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my formless substance, and in your book, were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there were none of them. So people talk about that formless substance, that initial uh, scenario of, of fertilization. God says right here that in your formless substance I know you. God is the author of our being. Parents are just the vessel. And then lastly, in Genesis 1.27, it says, For God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Him, male and female, He created them. There we see where God created not just Adam, but He created Adam and Eve for what? For the purposes of propagation. To be fruitful and multiply is what He tells them. So Scripture, though we've been using Scripture to justify this, is sometimes used against it. Some people will take verses of Scripture and say, well, look, God doesn't care about this. You're making an issue out of something that He has not spoken on 
or that he doesn't care about. And they will use different verses. I'm not going to read the verses, but we're just going to quickly go through these. Some of the ones that will be used, and you can look these up later if you'd like. Numbers 5 is a big one. It talks of an adultery test. Is anybody familiar with that? I don't want to read the whole thing because it's, it's a lot. But Numbers 5, 11 through 31, it's an adultery test for the children of Israel where if a woman is suspected of adultery, there's a drink that she has to drink in front of the Lord. And if she was adulterous, she may lose the child. But the point here that the pro-abortion people are not understanding is that it is not the people who are deciding what happens with that child at that point. It is God. God is the one deciding. And the potter has the right over the clay. God knows when He will end our time here and take us to heaven. Now they also use Hosea Hosea 9, Isaiah 13, but those are judgments. By who? By people? No, by God. Once again, it's God doing these things. God has the right to decide when your time is up. And then lastly, they'll use Deuteronomy 13. But it is another one where it is taken out of context because what it is giving them is a punishment if they turn away from who? From God. So it is God again. So the context is incorrect when they use these things. Now the earthly reasons that we get to justify these, to justify abortion. I pulled these from actual statistics and uh, surveys that were taken by the government. And the top answers were, having a baby would dramatically change my life. That's one of the top ones. Duh. Of course it's going to change your life. But... Because something's going to change your life, does that suddenly give you the right to end another? That's the question. Another one is, I can't afford a baby right now. Join the club. You know, it's expensive. But since when does monetary value decide the value of life? That's the question. A large uh, proportion cited relationship problems or a desire to avoid single motherhood. We'll get back to this because this is not just on the woman. Another one said that there would the dramatic impact a baby would have on the family's life or on the other children. These are very poor reasons to justify the taking of another life. Oh, and a big one. Like I said, this is not just the women. A big one was that the men pressured the women to do it because they didn't want the responsibility. They didn't want the reward of being a father. So why do I bring these up? Because these are secular reasons. Because they're not secular reasons in a way. Everything boils down to a sin problem. It all does. We all have it. Men and women But when you see somebody with a genuine sin problem 
And when I'm talking about sin, I'm not talking about inadvertently sinning. Because we all inadvertently sin. Me, most of all. I'm talking about purposeful sin. Sinning so that grace can abound, or sinning because you don't believe in sin anyways and you can do whatever you want. Those are different things. But when we talk about a sin problem, it usually boils down to money, power, or sex. One of the three is usually the reason. This course being the latter. Because God has given us this wonderful ability to create life. And any time two people participate in that activity, everyone knows that there is a chance for a baby, unless, you know, maybe physically you're not able to. Everyone knows that there's a chance there. Three of our children were on birth control. There is always a chance. Let me tell you. But we were married, and we knew the value of children. It wasn't an upset. It was, oh, well, I guess we're having a baby. You know? <clears throat> but the beauty and the gift of procreation has been lost on society because we've kind of went back to that hedonistic thing where it's just about what people want. We've reduced the value of it. This is why biblical churches and biblical households need to teach a couple things. They need to be teaching the sanctity of marriage, number one, the sanctity of marriage, and the sanctity of procreation. Because they are intertwined. They are, you cannot separate the two. They are meant for each other, regardless if we don't do them the right way. They are meant for each other. If we don't, we've seen examples in the Bible where that goes very badly. Cities that have been judged. Now, we're not in that testament anymore. Do I believe that God is going to rain down on a city of Hemingford or something like that? I don't believe that's the covenant we're in, but that doesn't change his view. These are the things that we have to teach so that the next generation can continue the trend of hopefully holding life in a better stance. So... I know this was kind of short, but I hope that I've made the case for what Scripture, what Scripture's stance is on this issue. And by Scripture, we talk about this because it is God-inspired, God-breathed. That's the importance of Scripture. So abortion, according to Scripture, is a sin. And it's on par with the sin of murder because it essentially is murder. It takes away somebody's life, somebody's future and potential. When you cut off one person, you cut off potentially countless generations of people. But most of all, it, in the end, it tells, it tells everyone, I am the potter now, not God. It puts the authority where it doesn't belong. But we can't talk about that without talking about what? God's redeeming power. Because all this being said, 
If someone has had an abortion, if somebody has committed murder, theft, adultery, any sin under the sun, God's grace is greater and it is available to all who choose Him and love Him. We'll end with a verse here. With Romans, uh, Romans 1, 16-17. says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God to, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous one will live by faith. So, it's kind of a lot there. It's a heavy topic. Does anyone have any questions or comments? Anything that they would like to add? This is most certainly your guys' sermon too. I am not the dictator of what you believe. I'm only laying out what I say what I believe Scripture says.